Chapter Sixteen, Part One of the Jesuits in North America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Jesuits in North America in the Seventeenth Century by Francis Parkman. Chapter Sixteen, Part One, sixteen forty nine to sixteen forty four. Isaac Jogues. The waters of the St. Lawrence rolled through a virgin wilderness where, in the vastness of the lonely woodlands, civilized man found a precarious harbourage at three points only, at Quebec, at Montreal, and at three rivers. Here, and in the scattered missions, was the whole of New France, a population of some three hundred souls in all. And now, over these miserable settlements, rose a war-cloud of frightful portent. It was thirty-two years since Champlain had first attacked the Iroquois. They had nursed their wrath for more than a generation and at length their hour was come. The Dutch traders at Fort Orange, now Albany, had supplied them with firearms. The Mohawks, the most easterly of the Iroquois nations, had, among their seven or eight hundred warriors, no less than three hundred armed with the arquebus, a weapon somewhat like the modern carbine. They were masters of the thunderbolts which, in the hands of Champlain, had struck terror into their hearts. We have surveyed in the introductory chapter the character and organization of this ferocious people, their confederacy of five nations, bound together by a peculiar tie of clanship, their chiefs, half hereditary, half elective, their government, an oligarchy in form and a democracy in spirit, their minds, thoroughly savage, yet marked here and there with traits of a vigorous development. The war which they had long waged with the Hurons was carried on by the Senecas, and the other western nations of their league, while the conduct of hostilities against the French and their Indian allies in Lower Canada was left to the Mohawks. In parties of from ten to a hundred or more, they would leave their towns on the river Mohawk, descend Lake Champlain and the river Richelieu, lie in ambush on the banks of the St. Lawrence, and attack the passing boats or canoes. Sometimes they hovered about the fortifications of Quebec and Three Rivers, killing stragglers, or luring armed parties into ambuscades. They followed like hounds on the trail of travellers and hunters, broke in upon unguarded camps at midnight, and lay in wait, for days and weeks, to intercept the Huron traders on their yearly descent to Quebec. Had they joined to their ferocious courage the discipline and the military knowledge that belonged to civilization, they could easily have blotted out New France from the map, and made the banks of the St. Lawrence once more a solitude, but though the most formidable of savages, they were savages only. In the early morning of the 2nd of August, 1642, twelve Huron canoes were moving slowly along the northern shore of the expansion of the St. Lawrence, known as the Lake of St. Peter. There were on board about forty persons, including four Frenchmen, one of them being the Jesuit, Isaac Jogues, whom we have already followed on his missionary journey to the towns of the Tobacco Nation. In the interval he had not been idle. During the last autumn, 1641, he, with Father Charles Rambault, had passed along the shore of Lake Huron northward, entered the strait through which Lake Superior discharges itself, pushed on as far as the Sault Saint Marie, and preached the faith to two thousand Ojibwas and other Algonquins there assembled. He was now on his return from a far more perilous errand. The Huron mission was in a state of destitution. There was need of clothing for the priests, of vessels for the altars, of bread and wine for the Eucharist, of writing materials, in short, of everything, and early in the summer of the present year, 
Jogues had descended to Three Rivers and Quebec with the Huron traders, to procure the necessary supplies. He had now accomplished his task, and was on his way back to the mission. With him were a few Huron converts, and among them a noted Christian chief, Eustache Ahitsistari. Others of the party were in course of instruction for baptism, but the greater part were heathen, whose canoes were deeply laden with the proceeds of their bargains with the French fur traders. Jogues sat in one of the leading canoes. He was born at Orléans in 1607, and was thirty-five years of age. His oval face and the delicate mould of his features indicated a modest, thoughtful, and refined nature. He was constitutionally timid, with a sensitive conscience and great religious susceptibilities. He was a finished scholar, and might have gained a literary reputation, but he had chosen another career, and one for which he seemed but ill-fitted. Physically, however, he was well matched with his work, for though his frame was slight, he was so active that none of the Indians could surpass him in running. With him were two young men, René Gopil and Guillaume Couture, don of the mission, that is to say, laymen who, from a religious motive and without pay, had attached themselves to the service of the Jesuits. Goupil had formerly entered upon the Jesuit novitiate at Paris, but failing health had obliged him to leave it. As soon as he was able, he came to Canada, offered his services to the superior of the mission, was employed for a time in the humblest offices, and afterwards became an attendant at the hospital. At length, to his delight, he received permission to go up to the Hurons, where the surgical skill which he had acquired was greatly needed, and he was now on his way thither. His companion, Couture, was a man of intelligence and vigor, and of a character equally disinterested. Both were, like Jogues, in the foremost canoes, while the fourth Frenchman was with the unconverted Hurons in the rear. The twelve canoes had reached the western end of the Lake of St. Peter, where it is filled with innumerable islands. The forest was close on their right, they kept near the shore to avoid the current, and the shallow water before them was covered with a dense growth of tall bulrushes. Suddenly the silence was frightfully broken. The war-whoop rose from among the rushes, mingled with the reports of guns and the whistling of bullets, and several Iroquois canoes, filled with warriors, pushed out from their concealment, and bore down upon Jogues and his companions. The Hurons in the rear were seized with a shameful panic. They leapt ashore, left canoes, baggage, and weapons, and fled into the woods. The French and the Christian Hurons made fight for a time, but when they saw another fleet of canoes approaching from the opposite shores or islands, they lost heart, and those escaped who could. Goupil was seized amid triumphant yells, as were also several of the Huron converts. Jogues sprang into the bulrushes, and might have escaped, but when he saw Goupil and the neophytes in the clutches of the Iroquois, he had no heart to abandon them, but came out from his hiding-place, and gave himself up to the astonished victors. A few of them had remained to guard the prisoners, the rest were chasing the fugitives. Jogues mastered his agony, and began to baptize those of the captive converts who needed baptism. Couture had eluded pursuit, but when he thought of Jogues and of what perhaps awaited him, he resolved to share his fate, and, turning, retraced his steps. As he approached, five Iroquois ran forward to meet him, and one of them snapped his gun at his breast, but it missed fire. In his confusion and excitement, Couture fired his own piece, and laid the savage dead. The remaining four sprang upon him, stripped off all his clothing, tore away his fingernails with their teeth, gnawed his fingers with the fury of famished dogs, and thrust a sword through one of his hands. 
Jogues broke from his guards, and rushing to his friend, threw his arms about his neck. The Iroquois dragged him away, beat him with their fists and war-clubs till he was senseless, and when he had revived, lacerated his fingers with their teeth, as they had done those of Couture. Then they turned upon Goupil, and treated him with the same ferocity. The Huron prisoners were left for the present unharmed. More of them were brought in every moment, till at length the number of captives amounted in all to twenty-two, while three Hurons had been killed in the fight and pursuit. The Iroquois, about seventy in number, now embarked with their prey, but not until they had knocked on the head an old Huron, whom Jogues, with his mangled hands, had just baptized, and who refused to leave the place. Then, under a burning sun, they crossed to the spot on which the town of Sorrel now stands at the mouth of the river Richelieu, where they encamped. Their course was southward, up the river Richelieu and Lake Champlain, thence by way of Lake George to the Mohawk towns. The pain and fever of their wounds, and the clouds of mosquitoes, which they could not drive off, left the prisoners no peace by day, nor sleep by night. On the eighth day they learned that a large Iroquois war-party, on their way to Canada, were near at hand, and they soon approached their camp, on a small island near the southern end of Lake Champlain. The warriors, two hundred in number, saluted their victorious countrymen with volleys from their guns. Then, armed with clubs and thorny sticks, ranged themselves in two lines, between which the captives were compelled to pass up the side of a rocky hill. On the way they were beaten with such fury that Jogues, who was last in the line, fell powerless, drenched in blood and half dead. As the chief man among the French captives he fared the worst. His hands were again mangled, and fire applied to his body, while the Huron chief, Eustache, was subjected to tortures even more atrocious. When, at night, the exhausted sufferers tried to rest, the young warriors came to lacerate their wounds and pull out their hair and beards. In the morning they resumed their journey, and now the lake narrowed to the semblance of a tranquil river. Before them was a woody mountain, close on their right a rocky promontory, and between these flowed a stream, the outlet of Lake George. On those rocks, more than a hundred years after, rose the ramparts of Ticonderoga. They landed, shouldered their canoes and baggage, took their way through the woods, passed the spot where the fierce Highlanders and the dauntless regiments of England breasted in vain the storm of lead and fire, and soon reached the shore where Abercrombie landed and Lord Howe fell. First of white men, Jogues and his companions gazed on the romantic lake that bears the name, not of its gentle discoverer, but of the dull Hanoverian king. Like a fair naiad of the wilderness, it slumbered between the guardian mountains that breathed from crag and forest the stern poetry of war. But all then was solitude, and the clang of trumpets, the roar of cannon, and the deadly crack of the rifle had never as yet awakened their angry echoes. Again the canoes were launched, and the wild flotilla glided on its way, now in the shadow of the heights, now on the broad expanse, now among the devious channels of the narrows, beset with woody islets, where the hot air was redolent of the pine, the spruce, and the cedar, till they neared that tragic shore, where in the following century New England rustics baffled the soldiers of Discal, where Montcalm planted his batteries, where the Red Cross waved so long amid the smoke, and where at length the summer night was hideous with carnage, and an honored name was stained with a memory of blood. The Iroquois landed at or near the future site of Fort William Henry, left their canoes, and with their prisoners began their march for the nearest Mohawk town. Each bore his share of the plunder. 
Even Jogues, though his lacerated hands were in a frightful condition and his body covered with bruises, was forced to stagger on with the rest under a heavy load. He, with his fellow prisoners, and indeed the whole party, were half-starved, subsisting chiefly on wild berries. They crossed the upper Hudson, and in thirteen days after leaving the St. Lawrence, near the wretched goal of their pilgrimage, a palisaded town standing on a hill by the banks of the river Mohawk. The whoops of the victors announced their approach, and the savage hides sent forth its swarms. They thronged the side of the hill, the old and the young, each with a stick, or a slender iron rod, brought from the Dutchman on the Hudson. They ranged themselves in a double line, reaching upward to the entrance of the town, and through this narrow road of paradise, as Jogues calls it, the captives were led in single file, Couture in front, after him a half-score of Hurons, then Goupil, then the remaining Hurons, and at last Jogues. As they passed, they were saluted with yells, screeches, and a tempest of blows. One, heavier than the others, knocked Jogues' breath from his body, and stretched him on the ground, but it was death to lie there, and regaining his feet, he staggered on with the rest. When they reached the town, the blows ceased, and they were all placed on a scaffold, or high platform, in the middle of the place. The three Frenchmen fared the worst, and were frightfully disfigured. Goupil, especially, was streaming with blood, and livid with bruises from head to foot. They were allowed a few minutes to recover their breath, undisturbed, except by the hootings and jibes of the mob below. Then a chief called out, "'Come, let us caress these Frenchmen,' and the crowd, knife in hand, began to mount the scaffold. They ordered a Christian Algonquin woman, a prisoner among them, to cut off Jogues' left thumb, which she did, and a thumb of Gopil was also severed, a clamshell being used as the instrument in order to increase the pain. It is needless to specify further tortures to which they were subjected, all destined to cause the greatest possible suffering without endangering life. At night they were removed from the scaffold, and placed in one of the houses, each stretched on his back, with his limbs extended, and his ankles and wrists bound fast to stakes driven into the earthen floor. The children now profited by the examples of their parents, and amused themselves by placing live coals and red-hot ashes on the naked bodies of the prisoners, who, bound fast and covered with wounds and bruises which made every movement a torture, were sometimes unable to shake them off. In the morning they were again placed on the scaffold, where, during this and the two following days, they remained exposed to the taunts of the crowd. Then they were led in triumph to the second Mohawk town, and afterwards to the third, suffering at each a repetition of cruelties, the detail of which would be as monotonous as revolting. In a house in the town of Tiananmen, Jogues was hung by the wrist between two of the upright poles which supported the structure, in such a manner that his feet could not touch the ground, and thus he remained for some fifteen minutes, in extreme torture, until, as he was on the point of swooning, an Indian, with an impulse of pity, cut the cords and released him. While they were in this town, four fresh Huron prisoners, just taken, were brought in, and placed on a scaffold with the rest. Jogues, in the midst of his pain and exhaustion, took the opportunity to convert them. An ear of green corn was thrown to him for food, and he discovered a few raindrops clinging to the husks. With these he baptized two of the Hurons. The remaining two received baptism, soon after, from a brook which the prisoners crossed on the way to another town. Couture, though he had incensed the Indians by killing one of their warriors, had gained their admiration by his bravery, 
and after torturing him most savagely, they adopted him into one of their families, in place of a dead relative. Thenceforth he was comparatively safe. Jogues and Goupil were less fortunate. Three of the Hurons had been burned to death, and they expected to share their fate. A council was held to pronounce their doom, but dissensions arose, and no result was reached. They were led back to the first village, where they remained, racked with suspense and half-dead with exhaustion. Jogues, however, lost no opportunity to baptize dying infants, while Goupil taught children to make the sign of the cross. On one occasion he made the sign on the forehead of a child, grandson of an Indian in whose lodge they lived. The superstition of the old savage was aroused. Some Dutchmen had told him that the sign of the cross came from the devil, and would cause mischief. He thought that Goupil was bewitching the child, and resolving to rid himself of so dangerous a guest, applied for aid to two young braves. Jogues and Goupil, clad in their squalid garb of tattered skins, were soon after walking together in the forest that adjoined the town, consoling themselves with prayer, and mutually exhorting each other to suffer patiently for the sake of Christ and the Virgin, when, as they were returning, reciting their rosaries, they met the two young Indians, and read in their sullen visages an augury of ill. The Indians joined them, and accompanied them to the entrance of the town, where one of the two, suddenly drawing a hatchet from beneath his blanket, struck it into the head of Goupil, who fell, murmuring the name of Christ. Jogues dropped on his knees, and bowing his head in prayer, awaited the blow, when the murderer ordered him to get up and go home. He obeyed, but not until he had given absolution to his still-breathing friend, and presently saw the lifeless body dragged through the town amid hootings and rejoicings. Jogues passed a night of anguish and desolation, and in the morning, reckless of life, set forth in search of Goupil's remains. "'Where are you going so fast?' demanded the old Indian, his master. "'Do you not see those fierce young braves who are watching to kill you?' Jogues persisted, and the old man asked another Indian to go with him as a protector. The corpse had been flung into a neighboring ravine, at the bottom of which ran a torrent, and here, with the Indian's help, Jogues found it, stripped naked, and gnawed by dogs. He dragged it into the water, and covered it with stones to save it from further mutilation, resolving to return alone on the following day and secretly bury it. But with the night there came a storm, and when, in the gray of the morning, Jogues descended to the brink of the stream, he found it a rolling, turbid flood, and the body was nowhere to be seen. Had the Indians or the torrent borne it away? Jogues waded into the cold current. It was the first of October. He sounded it with his feet and with his stick. He searched the rocks, the thicket, the forest, but all in vain. Then, crouched by the pitiless stream, he mingled his tears with its waters, and in a voice broken with groans, chanted the service of the dead. The Indians, it proved, and not the flood, had robbed him of the remains of his friend. Early in the spring, when the snows were melting in the woods, he was told by Mohawk children that the body was lying, where it had been flung, in a lonely spot lower down the stream. He went to seek it, found the scattered bones, stripped by the foxes and the birds, and tenderly gathering them up, hid them in a hollow tree, hoping that a day might come when he could give them a Christian burial in consecrated ground. After the murder of Goupil, Jogues' life hung by a hair. He lived in hourly expectation of the tomahawk, and would have welcomed it as a boon. By signs and words he was warned that his hour was near, but as he never shunned his fate, it fled from him, and each day, with renewed astonishment, he found himself still among the living. End of chapter 16, part 1